If you could turn with me to Revelation chapter 15, we're going to be looking at one verse. So Revelation chapter 15 and verse 4. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. Today, as Brother Rick mentioned, um, in the United States here, we're celebrating Thanksgiving. It actually happens to be my favorite holiday of the year. It is a day that gets more special to me the older I get. Um, Thanksgiving is celebrated fairly universally throughout our nation, although there has been a push recently to impugn it. Um, however, when I was young, I loved it because it meant being with family, eating some of my favorite foods, and quite honestly, watching the Lions play football on TV. But now I love it because it forces me to search my heart and to ask myself, have I been truly thankful throughout this past year? And what portion of that thankfulness have I expressed to God? Try asking uh, your guest today to ponder those questions at the dinner table. A heart overflowing with thankfulness is vital evidence of a true work of God on the soul of a man, woman, or child. Can God-wrought revival be accompanied without thanksgiving? I see no way that it possibly can happen. And I'm finding that one of the most effective ways to cultivate a true heart of thanksgiving is to meditate upon the attributes of God, thinking about his grace his mercy, his immutability, his love, his patience, his long-suffering, his power, his eternality, and even his wrath. If we're able to search the scriptures and see glimpses of his glorious attributes and not be thankful, there is something desperately wrong with our heart. We realize how big our God is and how small we are when we ponder him and everything about him. If you don't already have it, I'd highly recommend a little book titled The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. It's a really short book as far as page count goes, but you could easily spend hours in a single chapter. It's a phenomenal book that's been a tremendous blessing to me over the years. With the remainder of our time, what I want to do is focus our hearts on the attribute of God's holiness. So if we look back at Revelation 15, 4 again, who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. Stephen Charnock, the great Puritan, put it so well, God is oftener styled holy than almighty and set forth by this part of his dignity more than by any other. This is more fixed on as an epithet to his name than any other. You never find it expressed, quote, his mighty name or his wise name, but his great name and most of all, his holy name. How do we define holiness? I'll quote Pink here, where he says, He only is independently, infinitely, immutably holy. 
In Scripture, he is frequently styled the Holy One. He is so because the sum of all moral excellency is found in him. He is absolute purity, unsullied by the shadow of sin. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, 1 John 1, 5. Holiness is the very excellency of the divine nature. The great God is glorious in holiness, as we see in Exodus 15, 11. Therefore do we read, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Habakkuk 1, 13. As God's power is the opposite of the native weakness of the creature, as his wisdom is in complete contrast from the least defect of understanding or folly, so his holiness is the very antithesis of all moral blemish or defilement. I really like that quote from Pink. In short, we can see that the holiness of God is perfect and spotless and blameless in everything for infinity. C.H. Spurgeon wrote, the most spiritual and sanctified minds, when they fully perceive the majesty and holiness of God, are so greatly conscious of the great disproportion between themselves and the Lord that they are humbled and filled with holy awe and even with dread and alarm. So what then is our responsibility to God's holiness? I think you can all agree that we're living in a time when talk of living a holy life is scoffed at. I mean, especially by the unbelieving world, but even amongst those that professed Christ. Pursuing holiness is works righteousness, they cry. We're no longer bound by the law as the reason they exclaim for us not to even attempt to live a holy life. It's puritanical, they holler. Many are ignoring the countless scriptures that call us to a holy life. In 1 Peter 1.16, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Peter's referring to Leviticus 11.44, which reads, for I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. 1 Corinthians 9.26-27 reads, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself, I myself should be a castaway. Paul is here saying that he literally fights for holiness. 2 Corinthians 7.1 reads, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves, cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Again, Paul describing the duty of the pursuit of holiness. Now, of course, our pursuit of holiness does not save us. It never can, and it never will. Isaiah makes that abundantly clear in uh, Isaiah 64, verse 6. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So the very best that we can do in chasing after holiness is not going to save us. We are saved through faith in Christ and his work alone, as Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. 
In his book, Holiness, J.C. Ryle has written this. Without controversy, in the matter of our justification before God, faith in Christ is the one thing needful. All that simply believe are justified. Righteousness is imputed to him that worketh not, but believeth. Romans 4, 5. It is thoroughly scriptural and right to say faith alone justifies. But it is not equally scriptural and right to say faith alone sanctifies. The saying requires a very large qualification. Let one fact suffice. We are frequently told that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law by Paul, Romans 3.28. But not once are we told that we are sanctified by faith without the deeds of the law. On the contrary, we are expressly told by James that the faith whereby we are visibly and demonstrably justified before man is a faith which, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. The works are evidences of salvation. They're not causes of it. The desire for holiness is not to curry favor with God or to win his affection, but it is born out of a deep love and thanksgiving for all that he has done and a desire to be obedient to his very word. So let me give this illustration. When I was a young boy, I tried to walk like my dad. I tried to talk like my dad. I tried to work on fixing things like my dad. I tried to whistle like my dad. I tried to be as strong as my dad. I came up pitifully short in every area. But I didn't do those things because I was seeking his approval. I did them because I reverenced the man. When we seek to be holy like God, we will always come up lacking. But we're never to stop working at it. I'm nearly out of time, but I do want to touch on one final point quickly regarding pursuing holiness. Man can never reach a literal perfection. And on this point, Ryle states so eloquently, what saint can be named in God's word of whose life many details are recorded, who was literally and absolutely perfect? Which of them all, when writing about himself, ever talks of feeling free from imperfection. On the contrary, men like David and St. Paul and St. John declare in the strongest language that they feel in their own hearts weakness and sin. The holiest men of modern times have always been remarkable for deep humility. Have we ever seen holier men than the martyr John Bradford or Hooker or Usher or Baxter or Rutherford or McShane. Yet no one can read the writings and letters of these men without seeing that they felt themselves debtors to mercy and grace every day, and the very last thing they ever laid claim to was perfection. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, I encourage you to meditate on God's attributes in your quiet time with him, in your prayer closets, and during times of self-reflection. Look for them in the pages of Scripture and let your thankfulness well up to overflowing. May it generate in you a ceaseless praise and a desire to follow hard after him and his holiness. Amen.